You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So there's a, a very common call and response phrase, tradition in the Christian church about the goodness of God. I'm sure some of you have heard it before. One person says, God is good, and the second person responds with, all the time. And then the first person again says, all the time, God is good. All right, some of you, okay, so you've, you've heard it. So let, let's, let's try it together. Very simple. You ready? God is good. All the time. Yeah, right. Very simple. Now, it's hard, to, it's hard to pin down the origins of this liturgical phrase. Some research, research shows that it could have originated with suffering Christians in Liberia. Another source says Nigeria. Most of the things I found says, well, this just seems like a Baptist thing. Uh, my non-denominational church, I can say that word, uh, when I was growing up would say it would do this all the time. Um, but regardless, how, even though it's really simple, we don't know where it came from, it's very common, it's true, right? It's very true. God is always good. But if we're honest, maybe if you were paying attention to Psalm 73 as we were reading it, sometimes that's a phrase, however simple, however true, is easier said than believed, there are times in your life, there have been times in my life where we might say that phrase, but there's sort of a rising inflection at the end of that statement, right? God is good? All, all the time? Right? All, like, you mean all of the time God is good? And typically, our, our willingness to, to praise God and thank God for His goodness and His blessings is, is heightened when things are going well. When we're healthy, when finances are, you know, stable, friends are good, and it's, it's really easy to say, God, you are, you are so good to us. You're so good to me. But when tragedy hits or we experience suffering, which is inevitable, when we walk through, if you're with us last week in Psalm 84, when we walk through the valley of weeping, we start to wonder, God, are you, are you really so good? Or maybe you're good, but are you, are you actually good all of the time? And what makes this harder is when you're going through those hardships and then you look around and you see people who are not righteous, they despise God, they're, they're self-centered, they don't care about others, but they seem to be living a really nice, comfortable, cush life. It adds insult to injury because not only are, are you struggling and suffering as one who's trying to live a, a life that honors God, but then the wicked are prospering. And this morning as we come to our passage, Psalm 73, we see once again, we've seen this time and time again in our Summer in the Psalm series, that the Psalms do not shy away from such hard questions. If, you, if you've asked that question before, is God really good? And I'm not just saying theologically, though that's important, but because of my painful experience, God, are you really good? If that's you, you are just like Asaph in Psalm 73. And that should comfort us. 
Asaph was a man who, who knew God really well. He was, a, he was a minister. He was a worship leader, a songwriter for God's people. He had really good doctrine. He understood the truths about who God is. He wrote songs to be sung in corporate worship. He knew this theological truth about God's goodness. But here we read, even after all of that, even after years of following God, serving the Lord, knowing Him well, we read this autobiographical account of a time when he almost deconstructed his faith, when he almost completely walked away from God because he doubted his goodness. He looked around him and he saw the wicked prospering while the godly were suffering, and he becomes envious of them. And so he's telling us this account. And what he's telling us here, the passage in a sentence, he's telling us this. Listen, God tests our faith in order to teach us that He is our portion. He is our treasure. He's better than any of the pleasures of the world around us. Therefore, we can trust in His goodness. And here's what's unique about this psalm. Notice that he starts the psalm before he tells us of his faith struggle. He begins the psalm with an anchor. He tells us the conclusion he came to. Verse 1, a psalm of Asaph, and he says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, which means those who trust in Him. So he, he understands the doctrinal truth of God's goodness. He's saying, listen, you know, foundationally, I'm not, I'm not questioning that. Let's put that there as an anchor. God cannot be capable of evil. He can't be capable of sin. He is a good God. Psalm 145, we looked at a few weeks ago. He's perfectly righteous. Let this be an anchor to you in times of doubt. But then he goes, listen, I want to be honest with you. There are times when I feel, this is ASAP talking to us, there are, are times when I feel, I'm about to tell you about them, it's really difficult for me, God, to reconcile your goodness with my experience. Right? That's the, the struggle in this psalm. And so as we walk through this, it's a big psalm, 28 verses, as we walk through Asaph's journey, we're going to do it in four parts. If you're taking notes, here's sort of our outline for the morning. First, we see the problem of the wicked verses 2 through 15. Second, we see the pursuit of understanding, verses 16 through 17. Third, we see the provision of justice, verses 18 through 22. And then lastly, fourth, the portion for the godly. Problem, pursuit, provision, portion. I alliterated in honor of Pastor Clint being back with us from sabbatical. That's for you, brother. All right, so number one, the problem of the wicked. So we have this anchor statement, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's, he's telling us again, I almost lost my faith in God and His goodness. And the reason is when I look around me, I see arrogant and wicked people who are doing really well, they're coasting through life, while I am trying to follow God and I'm suffering and struggling. And one of the things I hope that we've learned just through walking through the Psalms this summer and in the past as we've done as a, as a church is how the psalmist, you notice this theme, I didn't notice this till this summer, but the psalmists are, are, seem to always be internally self-aware as well as externally aware of what's going on around them. You notice that? Asaph 
doesn't just notice what's going on around him. He doesn't just say the wicked and arrogant are prospering. He also has this internal self-awareness. He tells us of the response of his own heart, this response of envy. And just as a side note, friends, that's a skill of godly living, rightly looking around you and assessing the external circumstances of your life and looking internally and assessing your heart responses to those circumstances. So he's self-aware here. And he tells us, notice he doesn't start by emphasizing the wickedness of those around him, though that's an important part, but he starts with his heart response. He says, I was envious of them. He emphasizes his response first. Here was the problem. I was envious of them. What's envy? It's when you look at the achievements uh, or rewards of those around you and you become jealous. You say, I deserve what they have. Now, what, what did these people, we don't know who this group of people is, the wicked. We don't know how general he's being in his mind or how specific. But what did these wicked people have that Asaph envied? He tells us. He tells us they died in peace. Look at verse 4. He says, these wicked, arrogant people, they have no pangs until death. He tells us they had plenty of food. Verse 4b, he starts off kind of nice when he says, you know, their their bodies are fat and sleek. Fat was not a diss, right? He's just saying they're well fed. But by the time you get to verse 7, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. So not only are they well fed, they're so well fed and gluttonous that their eyes are popping out of their face. They're healthy and comfortable. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are, he says. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And they're rich and they're getting richer. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And again, what makes this worse is not only that there's this group of people over there doing really well, but it's the fact that they are, are denying God and they're oppressing others. It's their wickedness. Look at verse 7, second part of verse 7. Their hearts overflow with follies saying these are foolish people. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. So they're oppressors of those around them. And they mock those around them. They scoff at those who are in need instead of serving and helping them. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So they're, they're blaspheming God. Verse 10, they're Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So Asaph's saying, God, they are not only, it's not only that they're prospering, it's that they are, they're hurting others. They're completely and totally selfish. They're completely denying you. And by the way, God, they're acting as if you don't even know or care what they're doing. And he looks at his own life and he says, listen, if I'm honest, I don't want to do what they do, but if I'm really honest, I definitely want the ease of life that they have. God, don't I deserve that? After all, I'm trying to follow you. Now, what what might this look like in, in modern terms? I think it's really easy to think big scale examples of this. I'm sure you can, you and I can think of leaders and dictators who profit off of injustice and the abuse of of others. There are certainly all sorts of examples we can give of that, but there's also, I think probably more, not more relevant, but more everyday relevant for us are the subtle examples of where we see this happen around us. 
I think of a time as a pastor watching a a clip of a, a famous preacher that I will not name. It is massive church, his multi-thousand dollar suit telling people they need to give, I kid you not, this, is, this sounds like a joke, so that he can fund his private jet so he doesn't have to fly with all those other people. He can protect the anointing, right? $65 million jet, right? And listen, I'm not saying I want a jet. But maybe like the engine lights on my dashboard to go off, just some money to take care of that problem, right? And I've had that thought, like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to love and serve people, just make ends meet. And here's this guy spewing all of this stuff, harming people for selfish gain, easing through life. Or think of the, the Christian student at a university who spends time studying has an extra job to to make ends meet through school, reads the Bible, prays, tries to love others well, but is away from home, so they're lonely. At times they feel overworked. It's tough. It's boring. And they look around them and see fellow students just partying, partying their way through college. Not a concern for others, not a concern for God. Living in sinful pursuit, but it looks like they're having a blast. And envy starts to well up. Or the person who works his job so hard and faithfully, longs for a promotion, trying to be a faithful presence in the workplace, watches a coworker who he knows is dishonest, he knows he's cut corners, he knows he's self-centered, but that person gets the promotion instead. Or just more generally, you're just scrolling through social media or looking at the news cycle and you're seeing stories of people you know who don't have a care for anyone in the world but themselves and life seems to be easy. They're waltzing through and here you are trying to be faithful and you're struggling and you start to think, I want just a little bit of that. It'd be great to just have a little bit of that. You begin to think of all the good things you've done compared to those people, and you say, listen, not only do I want that, I deserve that. You're envying them. Why don't I have that? God, are you, are you really good? Right? See how that can subtly creep into our lives. And maybe, not only do you ask those questions, you start to question the way you live, which is exactly what happens to Asaph, he starts to regret his own pursuit of God. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Brutally honest here. He says, God, it feels worthless to try and live for you. Envy sort of eating away at him. He's in, he's in this place of such doubt and discouragement. And he's saying, listen, notice what he says in verse 15. He's saying, I don't even want to speak out loud about this because I know it will undermine the faith of others. Now, he's struggling with something that each one of us struggle with. We can call it comparison. We, all of us do it. 
If we look around us, we can always find someone who has more than we have. We can find someone who seems to be in a better position than we are in in life, whether that's finances or relationships, marriage, friends, even faith. And then we, we put ourselves on the sort of on the, the level with them and we compare ourselves. And friends, if, when that happens, when that's our definition of, of, of blessing in life, envy soon follows and then envy's brother, con- discontentment, comes right along with it and consumes you. Because you will always be able to find somebody in a better physical position than you. This is what's happening to, to Asaph. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart or a peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. So friends, we, we have to, to do the heart work of identifying our own temptations to envy. Right? And, and what, let me just give you three simple questions as you're considering envy in your own life that you can write down and consider maybe in the coming weeks. Number one, who am I tempted to envy? You look around you. Who are those who you say, man, I I want what they have? Number two, what is it that they have that I seem to want so much? That's a desire question. And then third, what does that desire say about my belief of God? Asaph's very, he's well aware of these things. He's brutally honest about what's going on around him, but he's also well aware of what's going on in his own heart. And this work, friends, this work's essential for you and I because envy is to doubt the goodness of God. He's saying this is, this is the, the root cause here is envy in my heart. It's to say, God, I know you've given me X over here, but I really want Y and I still don't have Y. Why aren't you giving me why? If you gave me why, then I'd believe in your goodness. Right? So we have the problem of the wickedness, but also the problem of our own envy. We have to do that heart work of assessing this in our own lives. Now, moving on, what does he do next? So he tells us of this problem, of the wicked prospering, his envious response. And then we see number two, the pursuit of understanding. Just two verses here. Verse 16. But when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So we see two ways. He's like, Asaph tells us there's two ways I tried to wrestle with this problem. First, he tried to understand it on his own, verse 16. Then he turned to God for understanding, verse 17. When he tried to understand this on his own, he's saying, I wearied myself in this pursuit. That word wearisome gets at the idea of just being frustrated, vexed, troubled, right? All of us can, can relate to this. The most common uh, why does God blank internet searches are, are this in order. Number one, why does God allow suffering? Number two, why does God allow bad things to happen? Number three, why does God hate me? Number four, why does God allow evil? Now, we tend to think of those as theological questions, and they are, but friends, can you hear the weariness in those searches? Asking those questions on your own, it's a wearisome task for two reasons. One, because there's a painful story behind all of those questions. This is not just like, let's go to the theology professor 
Let's read some books on this. No, there, there is heartbreak behind this. There's a cancer diagnosis behind this. There's a broken relationship behind this. There's shattered dreams. There's just being overwhelmed by the gross injustices and abuses we see in our world. Yes, it's, friends, it's a theological question, yes, but what, what Asaph is showing us is it's a deeply personal question. So it wearies us. But there's another reason that seeking to understand this on our own wearies us. It's because we often want a specific answer that God does not promise to give us. Now, we may not say this out loud, but we certainly think it. I've thought it many times. God, I understand I'm going through this hardship. I understand people over there are doing really well. If you could just open the skies, come down. You don't even have to come down. Just speak. You're God. You're, you could be loud enough. And just tell me, Kevin, here's the top five reasons you're suffering right now while the wicked are prospering. And get a pen, because here are the 32 benefits you're going to see of this in the next six years. Right? We go, oh man, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? But friends, that's, that's not how God works. And if your response is, well, he should work that way, let, let me remind you that he is God in heaven and we're here on earth. He is all-knowing, all-good, all-sovereign, and we are not. He is the creator, and we are his creation. Also, we don't live life that way. How boring would the beginning, uh, those of you who are married, think about the time you met your spouse. How boring would that have been if God just told you, here's how the next 30 years are going to play out exactly? That, that would remove the wonder and mystery of it, Right? Same with the, your career or this risk decision that you're, you're taking. There is beauty in the mystery. There is beauty in understanding. We can't comprehend all of what God does, but we can trust Him. This is why Deuteronomy 29 tells us there are the secret things that belong to the Lord, and then there are the things revealed to us. So please, please don't mishear me here. This doesn't mean we can't ask tough questions. This doesn't mean we don't wrestle through this. If that were true, Psalm 73 wouldn't be here. In fact, Psalms would be a very, very small book. The Bible would be a very small book. But we must consider such questions with a humble heart. That's the posture of Asaph, knowing that God is God and we're not. He's infinite and we're finite. We have to say with, with King David in Psalm 131, I don't get involved with things too great or wondrous for me. Now, this is the turning point in the psalm. If, you were to, if you're looking at your Bible, you can draw a line between verses 16 and 17, and that's the shift for, for Asaph. He moves on. He says, I tried to understand this on my own, and it was a wearisome task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary, sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. We've said this over and over and over again this summer in the psalms. What do the psalms teach us? Step one. Go to God with everything. I'm doubting. Go to God. I have really tough questions. Go to God. Pour out your heart to Him. I'm hurting. Pour out your heart to Him. Yes, with humility, but with honesty. And that's what He does. And He's telling us this. I realize I can't figure this out on my own. So I went to the temple to worship God and to reflect in prayer. And God met me there. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about the end of the wicked but first, we have to ask ourselves, let's pause and say, where do I go when I'm wearied by the difficult questions of life? Where do you go? I think one temptation 
is to suppress those thoughts and questions. One of the things I've, I've learned just as a pastor and, and, and as one who counsels others is there are many who grew up in the church and somewhere along the way, they bought into this lie that to doubt and ask questions is a sign of spiritual immaturity. And friends, if that was what you were taught, that's not true. Asaph was a, by the way, there are no professional Christians, right? But if you're to say, you know, the pastors, the theologians, they're the professional Christians. Asaph was one of those. Yet here we have this very vivid picture of his own struggle. So when that happens, wherever that idea comes from, those kinds of people who feel like I've got to suppress my questions, they feel guilty They feel shame because they're asking deep questions about God, the scriptures, and and life. They feel like they're second-class Christians if they're Christians at all. Friends, that is just not true. That is why gospel safety time is something that we repeat over and over and over again. So some are tempted to suppress those questions, but, but, but another one, maybe an opposite one, is to say, okay, I'm going to go to the world and I'm going to find the answers to these questions. I'm going to sort of try and put God aside, put the scriptures aside, and I'm going to answer these questions on my own. And you hear things like, well, listen, if God was really good, he can't be good and allow all this evil to happen. Or, or if he is good, he can't be that powerful, because if he was, he would do away with all the evil. That's a very common argument that ro- completely robs God of his sovereignty and his power. And the mystery of knowing a, the God of the universe that we can't understand. So friends, just let me, let me encourage you, wherever you are on those ends of the spectrum, maybe you're somewhere in between, bring your weariness, your doubts, your questions to the Lord who is surely good. Come to the sanctuary of God. And I think there's a hint here in verse 17 that Asaph is saying, I didn't wrestle with these things alone. Because temple worship, just like church, was never a private affair. It was a communal affair. So church, we need to be a place that welcomes weary and and doubting and questioning souls. People that say, listen, don't don't suppress your questions, your doubts, your envies. Don't go to the world. God's spoken. Come to Jesus. Come together. We'll open his word together. We'll discover his truth revealed to us together. We will together be like that man who longed for Jesus to heal his child and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is what Asaph did. And it was a turning point in his pursuit of understanding. And God met him there. And that leads us to number three. So we have the pursuit of understanding, number two. Number three, the provision of justice. What did God show Asaph here? Verse 18, truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, You despise them as phantoms. And if you look down at verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now, this isn't new revelation for Asaph. This isn't like Isaiah chapter 6 where he goes into the temple and there's an actual vision. What this is, is Asaph spending time with the Lord and remembering truth that's already been revealed in his word. 
He's remembering this. And here's, here's, what, here's what that revealed truth is. In the end, justice will prevail over the wicked. He's remembering the eternal justice of God. And when he does that, his vision is expanded. Maybe you guys have in your house those flashlights like a mag light where you can, you can twist the end of it and the, the beam gets really small and contracts. Nod your head so I just know if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. And then you twist it the other way and what happens to that beam? Right? The, the beam gets bigger and you can see more. Well, friends, when we're, when we're suffering, what can easily happen is our beam of focus, our vision, we just zoom in on that one thing that we're doubting on. We only see, and Asaph's just seeing, the wicked, are suff- the wicked are prospering, the wicked are prospering, and I'm suffering. That's all he sees. But what God does when he goes to the Lord, when he goes to God's truth, what God's word does is it expands his vision so he, see, he has a bigger picture. He has a more eternal perspective. And the eternal perspective, as we consider any of the injustices in our world, is this. One day, Christ will return to do away with all injustice, all wickedness, all sadness, all sorrow, and all suffering. Maybe you've heard the famous quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. What was Dr. King saying? He's saying, listen, our, our battle for civil rights is long. I know you're weary. I know it seems like nothing is happening. This is long, our, our fight for justice. But because of God, and we say because of Christ, because of the gospel, we know that it bends towards justice. And one day, all of the injustices, all of those seeming victories of the wicked will be done away with. And notice the language he uses here, Asaph. In verse 2, he said, my feet nearly slipped. I almost lost my faith. But now, he says, I'm firmly planted on the truth of God's goodness and justice, and I see that it's their feet who will slip. Verse 18, they're the ones who will slip. Justice will be served for them. And friends, this is the message of Christianity. Our sin against God brought ruin to this world, Genesis 3. Yet God is redeeming His creation through His Son, Jesus Christ, the provision of justice. As the creed says, who was conceived by the Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. On the third day, He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's where we are right now. But the creed goes on to say, and now we await the day when He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is Revelation 19 saying? God will, Christ will do away with all injustice. Revelation 21, what about for those who believe in him? 
He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here's the truth that comforts Asaph. Here's the truth that comforts us, and we see most clearly in the gospel. Christ wins. That's it. In the end, Christ wins. Now, he may not win on your preferred timeline or my preferred timeline. That may still, it certainly does leave so many questions unanswered, but we have to remind ourselves, he is God and we are not. He's God and we're not. He is the potter and we are the clay, as Paul says in Romans 9. So the provision of justice is God's eternal justice in Christ. And then fourth and finally, the portion for the godly. So Asaph rests in this truth, his vision's expanded, but it also reveals his own sinfulness, right? As that light gets wider, he says this in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So he says, how how foolish it was, once I realized this truth, to question the goodness and justice of the God of the universe. He says, I was like a beast towards you, God. How foolish of me to envious the wicked when all I have, I have the ultimate treasure, all I'll ever need in God. That's the turnaround for Asaph. And then he just goes on and he lists all of these benefits of trusting in God. He's saying, why do I need to envy the wicked when God holds me? God's the one who holds me. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Friends, you and I will walk through a life of hardship and trials and doubts and temptations. But in Jesus, who also walked through suffering, temptations, trials, but persevered, in him, we don't walk through those things alone. He will hold us. Do do you know why Asaph's feet never slipped? It wasn't because he had the intellectual prowess to come up with a good apologetic argument for the existence and goodness of God. No, Asaph's feet didn't slip because God was holding on to him. And Christian, he's holding on to you as well. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. So Asaph says, he holds me, but also he guides me. Look at verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. God gives us his word. He gives us... The the truth that's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us when we're wrestling through those things. And ultimately, he gives us the counselor, the Holy Spirit, his presence dwelling in us, John 14, 16. He guides us through this broken and painful life. And then, really the apex of this psalm, not only does he hold me and guide me, but he also satisfies me. Verse 25. Think of the difference of this to the beginning of this psalm. Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. A complete 180. From envying the wicked to being fully satisfied in God. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, what's going to happen in heaven? Who's going to be there? Are we going to, will there be tacos? You know, important questions like that, right? Maybe you think, man, I, I can't wait to be with loved ones and friends. I can't, think, I can't wait to, to experience the reality of no more pain or suffering 
or sorrow. I can't even fathom that. And friends, whatever, all those are great things, but they're not ultimate. Do you hear what Asaph's saying here? He's saying, whom have I in heaven but you? He's saying, God, if heaven were completely empty of all those other things, but you were there, I would have enough. God, you're my everything. You're my all-satisfying desire. Then he brings it down to earth. He says, there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. If you're all I have, that's okay because you're all I need. In other words, Asaph's saying, God plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus God equals nothing. Whom have I in heaven but you? God, you're my portion. And lastly, he strengthens us, he holds us, he guides us, he satisfies us, and he strengthens us as we walk through those times of doubt and difficulty. Verse 26, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's all we need. He is our portion. So friends, let me just give you two brief exhortations as we close, as you consider these things. First, trust in him. Trust in him. You say, I I believe, but I don't know if I believe. Well, friends, that's what that man said to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is small as a mustard seed. It's not the measure of our faith that holds us. It's the object of our faith. So if you say, my faith is weak, well, welcome to the club. Run to him. Trust him. Friends, if you've never done that, let me remind you of verse 27. You never trusted in Christ for the first time. Verse 27 says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So if you go, I want to know more about what that even means to trust in Christ. Ask somebody around you. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. And then continually trust in his goodness. Surely God is good to his people, even when I don't feel like it. Surely he's my portion, even when it doesn't seem that way. He's my hope in life and death. And when you wrestle with doubt, not if, but when, come to him. When you battle envy, look to him. When your heart and flesh fail, and they will, find him to be your strength. So number one, trust in him. And second, tell others of his goodness. I love how this psalm ends. Look at verse 28. But as for me, Remember what he said at the beginning? As for me, my feet has almost stumbled. Verse 28, as, but for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He's saying the the portion and treasure of God that I've experienced, I've got to tell others about this. What else will see them through the difficulties of this life? Friends, many around us, you know this, are living for these fleeting pleasures of this world. Many are are wrestling with these ultimate questions of life. So may we, who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, may we tell first our own souls, right? But then tell one another and tell those around us that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good.